Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mike Rosart Show. Please let me know if the audio and video quality is coming in a-okay. We are streaming live from the phone today instead of from the camera, so hopefully things are working all right. I go live every single Wednesday around 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So I do my live stream where we just talk about whatever and we have some fun live on the stream. Mostly it's just some buddies jumping in and some loyal subscribers in the last year and a half that uh, just jump in and bring their questions about, you know, how to spend less, how to earn more, and how to maximize the returns on their investment portfolio, whether that's working in stocks or real estate or whatever way that you want to invest your capital to build wealth. So. Hey guys, good to see you all on Tommy, Austin, Nikki, Matt Finance. Good to see you guys all on. So today's topic I think is going to be about the FIRE movement in general. So we'll talk, hey Little Pump, good to see you on. We're going to talk about the little uh, movement around this, what do I want to say? Why does no one reach early retirement? Like if you look at the data, and I was looking at the data, something like 96% of Canadians don't save more than 5% of what they earn. So if someone's making 100 grand a year, they're putting away like $5,000 for savings. Let's say there's a couple, the husband's making 50, the wife's making 50, they're putting away $5,000 a year in savings. That's a problem. And so I wanna talk a little bit about why that's such a huge problem and what's so wrong with our society that everyone's paycheck to paycheck and why no one's retiring in their 20s or 30s and furthermore, why no one is going to reach what I would call like full financial independence, why most people won't reach that, even in their 60s and 70s, they're still relying on the government to help support them, and that's because of bad choices. If you look at the data, people actually make enough. Like, the average Canadian is making like 47,000, the average family is making almost $76,000. That's a ton of money. If you're at least a little bit frugal with how you manage your budget, how you manage your money, you will have huge, huge opportunity to build wealth. I'm talking if you could save, like my family of four, we live in London, Ontario, we drive a decent car, we live in a decent house, in a great neighborhood, uh, Northwest London's one of the best neighborhoods in London. Um, I have a very good life, I eat like great food, um, of course I price match, of course I'm frugal and value conscious, of course I delay gratification. I don't get the thing that I want right when I want it. I have to save for it, I have to build for that financial future. But we live on less than $24,000 a year on a family of four. I did it with my brother, my kid brother lived with us for a while too, so there's, like we've, I've been supporting people variously throughout my life since I was 17. I grew up in poverty, so I know what it's like to live on minimum wage, a single mom living on minimum wage, and we made things work. Because I've been there, because I've been at the bottom, I can now, and I've now also been towards the top, I'm probably, I'm definitely in the top 1%, I would say, for you know, net worth, because I saved so aggressively. But having been through the whole spectrum, I can comment and say, it is a choice. Like, most of the people who say they can't make it work, and they say they need forty or $50,000 a year to live, those people often have vices like gambling, smoking, mental illness, um, you know, coffee addiction, Starbucks addiction, consumeristic, latest new iPhone addiction, the latest new kicks or shoes, the latest clothes, vacations. These are not needs, these are wants. And then when we live paycheck to paycheck for a long enough period of time, 
What ends up happening is the economy takes a turn, you lose your job, something happens, and you weren't planning for the future. By the way, if you're watching this, you're one of the 18 people watching this, and you are planning for your future, smash that like button. Um, let's, let's see those likes come in. Um, I think that it's important that we plan for our future. At the center and the core of why most people won't retire in their 20s and 30s, the simple answer is that no one wants to delay gratification. They want it now and they want it all. And you can't have it all now, you most certainly can't have it all, and if you don't delay for the future and you just live for the now, your future self is gonna be screwed. So I say live somewhere in the middle. Don't be so extreme that you're literally like pinching pennies and you feel like you're having a deprived life. At the same time, I think it's not prudent to live on, like if you make, for instance, $18 an hour, like slightly over minimum wage, and you work a 45 hour week every week, you should be able to live, I, I figure, you've checked my videos, how to live well, how to save money on minimum wage, I've done videos, I've actually lived, I went and pretended when I was working, making good money, I pretended that I lived on minimum wage. And I took a minimum wage earnings and I lived on half of that with my family and then saved all the rest to prove it was possible, right? I've done it. I'm gonna do it again, even now, with a family, I'm gonna document it over a month to prove to people that it is possible, that with a bit of effort and a bit of frugal hacking, you can buy gro like a lavish amount of groceries of quality produce for like $50 a week. That's, that's no problem. It's only a problem if you're eating out. It's only a problem if you're buying whatever you want in the store without buying what's on sale, right? When you just give in to your desires and then say, oh, there's nothing I can do. It's the economy's fault things are so expensive. It's the economy's fault I can't find a job. It's, and most, mostly if you look at the economic numbers, people who want to work can find jobs. Like, that's just a fact. If, if you have a beating heart you can, and you wanna work hard, you could probably get a job in this economy fairly easily. Canada's doing really, really well. Um, so, so is the United States right now, so for all, all my US subscribers. And actually, Australia's doing very well too for all my Australian subscribers who watch. And the rules are all different in all the different countries, but the same underlying principle always works. If you learn to live on half of what you earn, and anyone can do it, you can go rent a bachelor, you rent a two-bedroom apartment in downtown London here for like, a thousand, if you searched and worked a little bit hard, maybe a thousand bucks a month, I'm sure you'd find something. So for, hey Ivan, good to see you guys on. I've seen a bunch of people in the comments, I'm gonna jump back in and say hi to everyone. Erica, hashtag real talk, thanks, appreciate that. Uh, Diaz, frugal life, good to see you on. Tommy as well, good to see you on. David, good to see you on as well. And Austin, of course, saving us for suckers. No, it's not, I know how frugal you are. I know you, Austin, in IRL. Uh, spending's where it's at. <laughs> Joking agreed though. I know many people in my workplace making a lot of money and are still in a ton of debt. This is why I have this channel. Like I started this YouTube channel for that sole purpose and it was, I realized there was a gap in the marketplace. Like no one knows how to manage their money well. And I worked as a financial planner for a little while and I just couldn't peddle the mutual funds and insurance. It's a scammy, terrible industry. No offense if you work in like that industry, totally fine. Uh, you gotta make your living too and people actually need the financial help. So I'm okay if they're paying some fees to an advisor because the data shows that people who have financial advisors are two to three times richer over their lives. So having an advisor, even if you're paying them for like high insurance or high mutual fund fees, is better than no advisor at all, on average. I would argue that exchange traded funds are the better way to go, they're low fees, you get better compounded returns over the long term, but you've gotta treat your personal life like a business. I run my personal life like a business for a reason, and it's because every decision I make has to have a tangible 
uh, it has to be quantified and have a tangible return. So like, for instance, I went for sushi this afternoon and like you guys know I did a couple of videos about anti-frugality. It was an opportunity with some business colleagues to go out and you know have a meal. We actually got sushi for like, it was like $18.99 I think, plus tax and tip. Not terrible actually and it was all you can eat. I devoured like 3,000 calories. It is, it is dirty the amount of food we got and they actually, we ordered too much. They let us take all the food that was there from this all you can eat buffet for $5. That's a huge win. Pro tip, if you're going to get all you can eat sushi, they'll charge you for what's left over but sometimes at such a discount rate, if you smile at the waitress just right, you might end up getting a bit of a deal for the takeout on that sushi. But anyway, uh, relatively frugal if you consider the amount of calories the boys and I ate at sushi. But anyway, the point being is that you gotta splurge on yourself I worked really hard the last couple of days to achieve some really tight deadlines and targets and uh, actually locked up another property and worked on locking up another property. And so you have to reward yourself. Like don't be going out for sushi every day, but if you work hard, like let's say you've had a hard week and you've worked you know, all week and you didn't go out for lunch all week, go ahead and go out for sushi or go out and do that thing you love, go out to the movies. That's okay in moderation, right? Like that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm asking Cadians to do. The problem is Cadians are going in with their girlfriends and they're buying them Lululemon pants and the fancy shoes and all this makeup and then they're going out to the movies and they're going out for a keg dinner for a hundred bucks and they're doing that all the time and it adds up in a big way. And then as I'm moving away from property management, people who know me following the channel know that I'm getting away from the property management stuff. It's, it's tough, I like to outsource that now, but having done that for eight years, I got to meet almost a thousand tenants over the time, like through properties I've bought and sold and things and properties I've been involved in and projects I've helped people with over the time. I have like a thousand tenants and most of the tenants that I dealt with tended to be, or a lot of them were there. I had a lot of students and stuff like that, but in the lower income, I would say of the percentage of my tenants that were lower income, of those tenants, the number one underlying fundamental when they couldn't pay rent, it was almost always because of a decision they made. Like it would be like, oh, I had to go and like go on this, go on this trip so I couldn't pay my rent. And it's like, you went on a trip so you can't pay your rent. They'd be like, oh, I had to get this new car in my driveway, but I can't pay my rent. It's like, hmm. Or you go in their house and you see all the latest crap, like the newest iPhone and like the latest and greatest junk in their house and their kids have all these like tons of like crappy useless toys because they're not focusing on minimalism or focusing on what is valuable in their lives and then they can't pay their rent and they have no savings or most often what happens is no one wants to take accountability like we as humans we hate and by the way this is a hashtag real talk I'm gonna get into the question and answer in a second here I'm just venting about why I started this channel and what's still frustrating me is that we're not making progress the Canadians on average are not saving more they're saving the same or less and most of Canadians wealth comes from owning a house and then a house appreciating in value tax-free pretty much if you look at the data if you own a house in Toronto or Vancouver that's what the average Canadian built their wealth they're not saving it they like scrape together everything they had to put a little down payment down then they barely save it all and their house appreciates in value and that's how they build real wealth that's not a solid financial plan it has worked out for some people in a flatter real estate market that's not what you're gonna bank on for retirement in fact look at some of the data the majority of North Americans plan for an emergency inheritance, windfall of some sort, or winning the lottery to fund their retirement. You're not gonna win the lottery. <laughs> my, my subscriber base is already pretty frugal. I know you guys are all about fire, so I don't even know why I'm preaching this, but for like the two people who watch this who are now just finding this frugality movement, I would love to see someone make a change in their life and say, hey, like I'm gonna give up the Starbucks coffee so I can have an emergency fund, and when I lose my job, I don't need to go and say, 
to my landlord or go and say to my boss, hey, I need this job so bad, please don't let me go, I have no emergency fund. Instead you can say, it's okay to let, like, you know, if you get let go, it's okay. Your family knows that you've been saving 10 or 20% of your income for the last year and you've got a six month buffer to find a new job. And I guarantee you in six months, if you get laid off, you'll be able to find a new job, especially if you work at it. Like if you spend the time and the energy to go out there and build your resume and go out and take interviews, there is a job there. If you lower your standards enough, you'll find a job. Like there's, I see help wanted everywhere. As an entrepreneur, I've tried to hire. It is hard to find good help. No one wants to actually work. Um, it's crazy how many people I meet. Hey, John. Uh, it's crazy how many people I meet out there who don't want to work. They just want to come in from their nine to five, close their eyes, and like work four hours of that eight hours and then go home. That's not, in my opinion, as an entrepreneur, acceptable. Like, you should want to go in and create real value. Every time I used to go into work, I would try to create more value than I cost the company. Like I wouldn't just be sitting around trying to like milk the company forever I could, like on my phone, texting, doing nothing. This is just the generation today. People want to receive and they don't want to give. It's always a one-way street. And I've always looked at things as a two-way street. If you create value for your employer, like let's say you work at a call center, which is like a lowly kind of job. If you're banging out quality customer service for your clients or you're hitting certain targets or you're at least like getting on the phone and dialing or whatever, you're creating value for that company and your job should be safe in the long term, right? So um, that's always been something that, that I've always thought was that like, if you create value in this world, you will get value back. Okay, that is my rant. I'm gonna now do a bunch of Q&A and then I'll go back to more talking about strategies that I've talked about on this channel for you to create a budget to spend less money, how to earn more money. We're gonna talk about some side hustle ideas on this episode towards the end, but you guys gotta remind me to jump in and to jump in the comments and say, hey Mike, please remember to talk about some side hustle opportunities that you use or that other people you know in your network have used to earn more money while working a full-time job. How do we earn more money? And then the third thing, obviously, talking about once you've saved a bit of money, what do you do with that money? Where, where do you put it? Do you put it in the stock market? Do you buy real estate? What do you do with that money? And how do you build wealth? And by wealth, I mean safety for your family. So you have that backup if you lose your job or we go into the next recession, which is probably coming. Um, so you have that there to protect you from the downsides. So, okay, so I'm gonna jump up and hit some questions that I might have missed. Uh, okay, so I saw a little pump there. I saw ask Austin's question. Uh, Erica, hey, from Dominican Republic, dream me how I can fire soon. So for those people new to the channel, fire is financial independence, retiring early. It's a huge movement. It's taking off thousands of people are retiring from their jobs in their 20s or 30s and living on the passive income from dividends or stocks, some people use real estate, a combination thereof. They learn to save about half their income and in about five or 10 years, build up enough money that their passive income from all that saved pile of future money pays for all their living expenses so they don't have to work. That's the dream. You can choose to work, you can do what you love, but if tomorrow, you know, your kids are not, they wanna go out for a hike to the park or something, or you wanna go for a picnic, you don't have to go into work. Like, there's no financial obligation. When your boss changes over and you get a new boss who you hate, and they're like throwing shit at you downhill all day, you don't have to sit there and eat it because you're worried about paying the bills. That's the fire movement. There's different stages and levels of fire. So I think there's like super frugal lean fire, and then there's like really, um, lug, I call it like frugal fire and lux fire. So lux fire is like that luxury Grant Cardone fire. It's that person that wants to ball out with a nice house and a nice car. And that's okay to strive for that. It'll take you a lot longer. You're gonna have to grind for 20 or 30 years. Or 
be a really high earner or extremely successful in entrepreneurship, the more tangible, I think, realistic goal for the most, like the regular people like us, um, is to work average jobs like I did, make 50 grand a year, and just save most of that money. And when you're saving almost all of what you're making and investing that, you start building passive income real quick. By the way, we're gonna talk a little bit about Grant Cardona, saw him pop up, I mentioned him briefly, only because I watched Jordan Belford, The Wolf of Wall Street, grind Grant Cardone down. Loved to see that happen. Um, he got roasted on, if you guys go check that out, it's, uh, don't leave the, the stream now, stay on the stream with me. The 51 people watching, um, <laughs> definitely I want you guys all to stay on, but uh, yeah, that was, that was interesting to watch that happen. I, I'm not a huge fan of Grant Cardone. Personally, some of the stuff he says is all right, but I think he's got uh, ethically not a great guy. Same with Jordan Belford, the Wolf of Wall Street. He has an ethical line that I think he has crossed and he's, anyway, not, both are not mentors to me in any way, but those guys obviously did crush it in, in business and they have a luxury style of fire. They both reached stages where they could have retired but kept pushing themselves and that's okay. Like you might get to that stage where you're early retired and decide that you're gonna stay and stay in your job that you love or maybe you're gonna switch and like imagine if you were working as like a teller or something at a bank. Now you could switch and if you enjoy maybe the customer interaction, maybe now you'd open up your own financial advisory type practice, get your certifications and just talk to people in that capacity, right? So um, Marco says, meet Kevin. I heard meet Kevin did do, I saw it on my feed that he did do a video commenting on, on uh, the Wolf of Wall Street's Jordan uh, Belford and uh, Grant Cardone's little uh, podcast that they had. And then they each individually went on their phones and did like on their own channels blogging about each other. And uh, it was clear that uh, Jordan Belford's subscribers jumped and Grant Cardone's actually kind of subsided. So he clearly lost the fight. And uh, it's, it's clear that Jordan kind of roasted Grant Cardone for not really having great sales skills. Like the, like the both guys for what they do, um, I'm a totally different person in that like my angle has always been and continues to be like ethics first in the sense that like I can never sell something that I don't believe in. Like it just isn't me. If there's a product that I don't think has value, I just can't get behind it. It's just me. Like if someone approaches me on this channel and wants me to talk, like I got tons of people reaching out and I haven't really explored anything yet. There's a few I've been thinking about partnering on for sponsorships and I have to get behind the product. Like you could imagine if a big brand came to me and said, hey, hey, I'd love you to push like our mortgage products. If I don't have mortgages with them and they haven't done good things for me, I'm not going to want to talk about them. It's not me. I got to get behind the thing and say, hey, this is something that like I've used. It's worked for me. I would share that. That's a win for everyone but I'm not gonna get behind something that, that I don't actually believe in. So that's just kind of where I'm a little different. Um, like you can imagine in the scene in the Wolf of Wall Street where he's peddling the like, garbage penny stocks. I ethically couldn't do that. That would, that would be too much for me. Um, so that's something for me. Uh, 10% off if you use Home Depot. Okay, so we'll talk about some frugal hacks there to save on money at places like Home Depot and renovate your home on the cheap. Okay. Uh, next question came down here. I'm just going to quickly hit it. Mike, how would you approach a property that has extremely long-term tenants, 10 plus years that you want to leave? Offer a higher purchase price and ask for vacant possession or do cash for keys? So Tommy, I think there are several ways to like go about buying properties and in order to renovate the property that needs like to add value, you may have to have it vacant. Like it, you can't renovate a property with someone living there. And so, uh, my preference has always been to get the current owner, like if I'm buying a property, as the buyer, I'd put it in my offer and say, I'd like this property vacant on possession. Have the seller deal with all of that. 
Um, they may have the relationship with the tenant. They may offer the tenant money to leave. They may just flat out say, hey, I'm selling the house. I want it empty. You know, they can deal with all that, right? That's the easy solution. And I think you should value your time and value your stress because it's a lot of work to work with a tenant and help them to find a new place. People underestimate how much work it is to transition someone out of where they're currently living to somewhere new. And it's gonna cost you money. So you gotta value how much your time is worth, how much money you may have to pay to move them and you know, compensate them and whatnot and all the stress associated with that. And there's always the risk that they do not want to leave and you can't get them out. And so you have to keep them with low paying rent and you can't even fix up the property, which was your goal all along was to take this building and make it better. Um, in real estate, people who know me know that my strategy has always been, when, I, when I'm buying turnkey, my goal is to just run it efficiently. So I wanna keep utilities down as much as I can and maximize profits, right? Keep my building in good condition so that it has good resale value. But when I buy buildings that need work, people know that my strategy has always been to go in, I go into like single family houses and I duplex them. I've done it a ton of times. I bought a single family and I triplexed it. Um, I've done a lot of that work because I wanna create more housing. Like a big five bedroom house can be made into potentially a triplex and provide three families somewhere to live at a thousand each instead of one family at 1800 a month. That's a win for the landlord and for the community in a big way. Now there's three units on the market where there was one unit before. So now we can house three families instead of one. So I'm creating more housing, more affordable housing actually, and my rents go from 1800 now to 3000. Of course, we've got to spend a lot of time and energy renovating the building and turning it into a legal triplex or you know, renovating it or whatever you need to do to get that to that point. But that's a huge value add. So to answer your question, Tommy, I think it's probably easier your stage in the game that you just buy a vacant. Like it's a very difficult thing to go through. If you've already got the property and you've got the bad tenant in there and you've got to work with them, we can have another conversation about like what you have to do to work with the tenant. By and large, my greatest strategy has been take an approach of offer, like put yourself in their position and you're like uprooting them from where they live. And they probably like where they live. Half the time they don't like where they live and they want to leave and that's when it's great. Like if the building's in bad condition, it's amazing when, uh, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate the super chat. Uh, $10 super chat just came in. Thank you so much. Thanks for the great work, Mike and Kyle. I'm gonna botch this name, but I, I, you're, a loyal, you're a loyal fan. I've seen you on like millions of times on the, or hundreds of times on the streams over time. So I really appreciate that $10 super chat. All these super chats, I donate back to charity. And first I go to, goes to Kyle to pay for the equipment, to pay for his time to build the videos and basically help you guys learn about personal finance. But whatever's left over, I'm going to donate to the charity of my choosing or to my mentees, which I use as a charity fund in a lot of ways. Because the, uh, if you think about it, the, the mentee fund, like the mentorship program is one of the most valuable community service things that I do. I donate 40 hours a week of my time, a full-time job, which like the salary to get me is probably like three, $400,000 a year that I, yes, Jimmy, that's right. Yes, I do remember you reaching out about your, how's your duplex doing? I remember you renovating it, you just painted it. Um, yes, I do remember now from there as well. And your name is familiar on, uh, on YouTube. So good to see you on the chat and thank you so much for the super chat, appreciate it. You guys keep the lights on for this operation. We don't make enough to even break even right now, but at some point we'd like to make a profit and have that profit be reinvested into building a better channel, as well as basically use the profit from this to fund my community endeavors, like some of the things I do. I wanna reach out and do some financial literacy courses for kids in, in high school. It's something I have a, it's a passion of mine I'd like to get involved in. And then my mentorship program that I take, you know, like 20 to like, 28 year old guys 
typically is my target market. I take them in my mentorship program. They move in with me, live in my basement apartment of my, of my property, and I teach them about real estate. And by the end of the program, after two, three, four, five years, they've got 10 properties of their own and they're financially independent. So that's my like, sort of side mission, helping people get financially independent and teaching them about real estate investing business. And it's basically like a four-year degree, but instead of graduating with 100,000 in debt, you graduate with like a million dollars in real estate. So uh, Austin, yeah, um, I actually do go back to Ivy and I do a talk there and I was approached by Junior Achievement to go around and do a program. So that's something that Austin, I know you're big into wanting to give back to the students. And so maybe there's something there we should talk about doing together. I know your passions align on that front and that's big into my why, big into like why I did what I did, why I sacrificed and scrimped for like eight years of suffering through frugality and putting it all away was so that I'd be financially secure, put my own air mask on. Once your own air mask is on, then you can reach over to your neighbors and put the air mask on them, right? A lot of people start putting the air mask on everyone else and then they're suffocating. So put your own air mask on, then help the people beside you. We're both getting to positions, Austin, where we'll be, you're gonna be in the next few years, I'm sure, getting to financial independence. Let's talk about how we could maybe create something, like a, maybe even just a free program that we could give away that maybe would lead to opportunities for us to speak to high school students or people in that transitioning time about how to build their financial futures. Um, it's something I want for my own kids when they eventually get to that age. It's something that's really, really important, I think. In this, in this world today, there's just a big need. Like there's a grade 10 careers class and that's the only talk of personal finance at all. No one's taught how to manage a checkbook. No one's taught about anything about personal finance. And because of that, um, yeah, uh, yeah, that's just, anyway, we should, we should have a sidebar conversation about that at some point about how we can, like we're in a, such a, a great position to give back. And, and that's the beauty of, of being fire is that you can chase your why. You don't need to like go to work nine to five uh, we could just do what we love and often doing what we love creates a business like in some ways me sharing with you guys every single week consistently for a year and a half and making all these videos that has done a lot like i've you know we got over 13,000 subscribers we're on track for 14,000 instagram we got tens of over well over 10,000 instagram followers because people are excited about investing they're excited about saving for the future and more importantly if you look at the, the data 76% of people according to a gallup study don't like the work that they do that's major headline 76 percent of people are dissatisfied and throughout your career it's like well high in the 90 percent that at some point in your career you'll be dissatisfied in your job so most people aren't happy in their work so you may have to change work to be happy that changing of work to be happy requires a degree of financial stability you can't jump jobs when you're not financially secure so at a minimum if you don't even like the fire movement you've got to agree with financial stability, like financial freedom before financial independence, I guess. Like I think financial freedom is like, you're free enough to jump from jobs. You've got a base level of like needs met. Maybe you're not fully fire, but you're on that, on that track. So I recommend that for everyone. Build an emergency fund to stay ahead and uh, just, just keep ahead. Keep telling my high school uh, sister to watch your stuff. I don't know how to convince her. Frontal lobe, I think it just need to be more dynamic. Like maybe it's like more comedy. Maybe I should bake in like a comedy routine uh, into all of my videos somehow because that's how you engage people I think on the YouTube platform is having that entertainment piece built in Graham is really good at doing it Graham Stefan is really good at doing that Meet Kevin Kevin Pathrath is very good at doing that as well He's also a funny guy. Maybe I should be more like them Maybe I should put more time into this channel and do a better job of entertaining the youth But uh, I just am who I am and so I, I try to be better every day try to get 1% better at that thing that I'm focused on 
Um, lately, it's been building a you know a few businesses uh, around like the medical industry and around uh, real estate investing. So those have been my core focuses and the mentorship program. But I need to focus more time on the YouTube channel. By the way, I just want to say we've had like almost 60 people tune in live for the stream tonight, which is amazing. Um, I'm not doing a Patreon. If you've been following, I jumped off. I did the streams on the main channel. Then I made an alternative channel, channel I call it like an alt channel, where I was going live and then decided to switch back to the main channel and just not have two channels. It was too complex and too much work. I don't care what the algorithm says. YouTube typically doesn't like people that live stream and they definitely don't like when I leave my live streams up. So they incentivize me to delete the streams. The only way that it makes any sense to the YouTube algorithm is if I get a lot of super chats. So instead of doing a Patreon, if you like my content, if you wanna to donate to the cause, throw in a super chat, that's a great way to do it. It tells YouTube that the content that I'm doing is good. It tells YouTube that it's engaging. It tells YouTube to promote it to my greater audience. So it's also like a great way. I don't really need the money. Kyle needs the money. Um, my mentees need the money, so I'll do it for them. But uh, for me, it's about like, if someone gives me some of their money, that to me is the most valuable thing you can give someone is your time or your money. And so you guys are all giving me your time. There's like 50 of you watching right now, giving me your time. That means a lot to me, your time is valuable. And then giving me your money is just like saying, hey, it's codifying and solidifying in my mind that what I'm doing is adding value to your lives in some way. So thank you for that. You need to pick fencing back up. Okay, okay. Did we, frontal lobe, are, we, are you a Western Mustang fencer? Are, were we fencing uh, together? I used to be a, a fencer, so maybe that's, I'm not even realizing there's the connection there. Maybe I should come in with like my mask on and like do like a little routine there. Um, yeah, it's all about being dynamic and engaging. That's how the youth, I think, pick up on it. So, and it's also about being simple because personal finance is, you know, relatively simple. Like it's not that hard to build wealth. You just have to find strategies to spend a little less, like hold back on buying everything you want when you want it, and then like figure out how to earn more money, which I'm gonna talk about soon. You guys have to remind me, keep me accountable, make sure I talk about side hustles and income streams. And then you gotta figure out when you start saving a little bit of money up, what do you do with that? You don't go bet it on the racehorses at the track. You don't lend it to your sister. You don't put it in a savings or checking account and earn nothing. Those are things you don't do. Things you might do, maybe you go and invest in some exchange traded funds. Maybe you open a wealth simple account and put it mostly in equities. Maybe instead of bonds, you put real estate in there. I think real estate's a great way for that passive income, barring in the, fact, in the mind that it is a very hard job and you're buying a side hustle with real estate. It's not passive like when you're investing in stocks. You're doing an amazing job. Thank you so much, I appreciate that. Uh, that's an awesome comment. Austin, this is 100% free content for the youth. 100%. Amen, thanks, appreciate that. Hi Mike, my question tonight, so William, good to see you on. William's been loyal for the last like year. I think I remember seeing William join every single stream. He jumps in with his questions, typically real estate related, but I love to entertain all of the questions. So William Burkhead says, hi Mike, my question tonight is around placing, pricing a place to sell. I'd initially offered out at 205,000, but a friend said drop to 199,900 because the 200K is a barrier for condo sales. Do you agree? Okay, so depends on the market, depends on a lot of factors. Hard to give a, like a hard and fast rule, but there is a saying that if you price very low, you might find a buyer who's looking just in like say the 150 to 200 range. Maybe their actual budget is like 275 and they see your property listed at 199,900 because they're searching on the realtor.ca or the MLS, 
they're looking for a property between like 150 and 200. So they're only gonna see properties in those search parameters. They may now see your property at 199, go and see it, realize it's the nicest, someone just called me. Um, when my phone rings, then it screws up my, uh, my live stream. Uh, one of the downsides of doing it on the phone as opposed to the camera, but I think the iPhone has better quality overall than the uh, camera to computer setup we were using before. Correct me if I'm wrong, I think the audio and video are better on Wi-Fi this way than what you've seen maybe three weeks ago where you're on the computer. So I think we've actually improved by bringing in less tech. But uh, the point I was making was, I forget the point I was making now, because that phone call came in. Um, I was talking about how to price condos or something. What was I saying? I lost my train of thought. But basically like uh, 150, 200 grand, I think that might be, you find a lot of buyers in that pool. And then they get into the property, realize it's the best property, 199, and then might offer 230 or 240 in a multiple offer situation. Two people both would have not seen the listing at all if they were looking at the two, if it was listed in the 250 range. But instead, by listing it low, you got increased attention by people who weren't looking in the higher range, and they end up paying in the higher range. They maybe had the budget to go higher. Like I, for instance, when I was looking for my last house, I was looking between like the 400 and 500 range, and I just uh, recently bought a house in, well, it's closer to the 700,000 range. And it just so happened it was great value, but I, I didn't even see it the first time I was looking on the market because I had certain search parameters and that limited me from seeing that property. I happened to be driving to another property and drove by this one, saw it, stopped and was like, this is amazing value. And I bought the property. Uh, so check that out, I'm mean, moving. And on that note, my house I live in now, if anyone's interested in the ultimate house hack in London, Ontario, I'd be happy to partner with someone like a JV partnership on the deal and keep managing it or just sell the house altogether. It has the potential for nine beds and five baths with almost like two and a half kitchens, like a butler's kitchen, almost bachelor main floor master apartment, and then another bedroom here, like an office, and then three bedrooms, then ensuite upstairs, and a three bedroom, full massive apartment in the basement, over 3,000 square feet of living space for someone who's in like the 500,000s range. Um, could be a good opportunity. And my new house, so excited for it, guys. I'll have to share. I'm gonna share a little bit. I don't wanna share where I live, so I'm not gonna share the outside of it, just because as popularity is increasing and I just don't want people coming by my house who I don't know. I've gotten a little bit of that now actually here, believe it or not. So moving, um, keeping the, the privacy, but I will share that it is a almost 5,000 square foot, beautiful property, which I'm going to turn into the mentee headquarters of London, Ontario for the Rose Heart Nation. Uh, so we probably bring on another mentee as well. So that's exciting, um, really happy for that. Michael Chong, when is the new iPhone coming in? Actually, I ordered the iPhone, uh, the new iPhone 8. Um, it actually should be in at the office. I just have to check the mailbox. In theory, I already have it. Um, in reality, yeah, maybe next week. So hopefully for next week's stream, we'll have the new iPhone. And uh, yeah, the company's paying for it. Or I guess my company's paying for it, so I'm paying for it. But it just is a write-off. So anyway, it's kind of cool. Okay, let's go up and hit some more questions. Do, 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 do. By the way, that's super chat. Every time, if I get a super chat like every single Wednesday, it feels like someone appreciates that I'm doing this and it just, it's motivating as hell. Especially because money and time are the language that I talk in. And uh, when people put money to where their mouth is, it means a lot to me. Okay. Scrolling, scrolling up the chat bar, looking for the next question. I tell my teenage daughter to save 50% of what she earns. I want her to learn the habit of saving, living frugally, so when she is in her 30s, she can retire. Dia's frugal living, frugal life, that's uh, great advice. We do the same thing with my daughter. I'm like, and she's only three and a half, so it's still too young, I think, but uh, 
I want to start even having, and I talked about this on one of my videos about how to teach your kids about money. So that's a good one to watch and even uh, maybe get her to kind of watch a little bit, but definitely yourself to watch. Um, I think it's just talking about money in the house is a big thing. Um, we actively talk about like, hey, our mortgage payment is this much. Hey, we have these expenses that have to go out. Hey, um, you know, this, this bill, I'm paying it right now. And like when we use this credit card, it has a charge that we have to now pay off. And like we make the, the this or this. It's like, it's like, I use it all the time. I'm like, you can have this or you can have this, but we can't afford both. Even if I can afford both, I'm trying to teach her that like you have a set amount of money and the value of that money only goes so far. I think a lot of people don't own the value of a dollar and that's part of the problem. Um, but yeah, like teaching frugality early on, saving 50% of your income, paying yourself first is so important. And like, even though a lot of people know this, like they've read The Wealthy Barber or one of those introductory personal finance books, love The Wealthy Barber, get your son or daughter to read it. I read it when I was like 15, I think. Um, and there's Wealthy Barber Returns. But The Wealthy Barber is a great narrative story that teaches personal finance. It's really watered down and basic, like save 10% of your money. But the concepts in there are so banger. Like I'm gonna force my kids to both read it when they're like 12. Um, it's an engaging story about like a barber shop. And so The Wealthy Barber, um, David Chilton wrote it. Really like a lot of what he had to say in that book. I think it's very rudimentary, very basic, but at least it gets you thinking about the power of compound interest, about the power of paying yourself first, um, about how to start investing and just get the, the wheels turning. Because I think what I find is that when people start getting those wheels turning, they, they reach out and they find channels like these and then they go way deep, right? And so that's the, the big thing is just get the wheels started in your kid's mind. Like even myself, at like 16, I was still not fully... Like, yeah, I remember being 16 years old and, and not really understanding like this early retirement thing or like I read David Chilton's book when I was like probably 14 or something. And I remember thinking it, like it was a good book and I enjoyed like the whole like money stuff, but I didn't really understand it the way I, I do now. Right. So like I hadn't dug deep and I don't think really I was totally practicing to be honest. Like I was when I would take girls out to the movies on dates and stuff, I would just get like all like the most expensive popcorn and drinks and like candies and I wasn't concerned at all about being like super frugal. Um, probably because I just had started my first job. Yes, my first job at Tim Hortons when I just turned 16 was probably the turning point for me. Like I had to work 10 or 12 hour shifts. I worked almost 40 hours a week while I was in high school. I worked a full-time job. And that was like minimum wage kind of thing, right? I made a bit, maybe made, I think I made a dollar more because I was, I, up, I got upgraded to the weekend baker. They promoted me. And uh, at 16, I learned the value of a dollar. I learned that like an hour of my time made me like $9, which that was like the minimum wage back then, eight or $9. And so if I had to go to the movies then with friends, I wasn't getting the $25 popcorn and drink combo. I was getting like the $8 movie ticket and that was it. So I was like, hmm, when I think this through, my mom is no longer going to pay for this. So it's not free money. I now have to work for this. So cut your kids off, you know, make them, I think allowances are important, bonuses if they do more work, like commission structure. If they cut grass when they're not supposed to, or they do dishes when they don't have to, bonus them, right? But have a steady salary with a set number of duties to teach them what it's like to be in the real world and make them earn the money to do the stuff. Don't hand them 20 bucks when they wanna to go to the movies with their friends just because you want them to fit in. I think it's important to give them the opportunity to earn that money. Like make sure they have lots of opportunities to earn the money, but opportunity is important because then they, the kid has to choose to take action on that. But when it's their money, you'll realize when it's your own money and you've worked for it, that there's and, and that's something that maybe, maybe that was the turning point for me, I think, in some ways too, was realizing that like an hour of my time away from gaming, away from my friends, working, working sucked, and working to earn money 
to then go spend it. So I was like very conscious with saying like, hey, I just worked eight hours. My entire Saturday was gone. I had to miss out on a friend's birthday party because I had to work at Tim Hortons, work a shift. Do I now want to spend all that life energy I just invested to get this, you know, $80? Don't want to blow that. And it was like, no, I'm going to save half that for a rainy day. And so that was always just like my style. Um, yeah, I think that's a good, good overall fundamental. Knowledge is power. That is true. Good to see you on. Or the potential of a dollar. That's right too. Is it worth renting property to students? Uh, Pratik, I think it is worth renting to students. I like renting to students. Um, I think that, yes, it, it's worth uh, renting to students depending on your market, depending on your strategy. Students are harder to rent to because they do more damage to the property and they turn over more often. But you won't end up at the landlord-tenant board fighting with the tenant. Um, when you want, the like the tenants will leave automatically when they graduate school. They're not there for their whole life. So you never get below market rents. You often don't have lifers that stay and harass you. Like if you have a bad tenant group, it's like it's a year and it's done or two years and it's done. Um, if you get a bad tenant in a unit, just like there's some professional, like the 5% of tenants that are pro serial professional scumbags that just go from landlord to landlord abusing them and not paying their rent and then going like five months not to be evicted and then end up finally finding a new place and doing it again and again, faking their landlord references, getting their friends to uh, fake everything and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, it's definitely one of those things where that burns landlord in a big way. And so with student rentals, you don't get that to the same, like it just doesn't happen. It's like how on Airbnb, you don't have to deal with a tenant that you can't, like you don't have that situation. If you have a bad guest, like the guest is awful and they destroy your, your, like, your whole unit, you have their credit card on file, Airbnb lets you go after them for the money. You can't go after a tenant. There is no recourse. You can't garnish government wages. It's, there's no way to get repaid. You can't get blood from a stone. So that's like where landlords are very risk averse, I think, and afraid to, to, to get burned. With student rentals, it's hard to get burned in a big way. Um, if you're smart with your, your screening and you get the parents in the lease and you get good students in good programs and you check their GPA. like. Every student I've ever rented to with an A average has never screwed me, ever. The only students that have ever screwed me are the B, C, D students. So you look at their transcript and it'll tell you a lot about the type of person you're dealing with. I don't need to check credit score really. I need to check their, their transcript. That's what's important. So yeah, get their, talk to their parents, see what kind of parents they have. Um, all those things are, are factors. Student rentals are great because you get more rent. Um, students will stay for a shorter period. You have more turnover, potentially a little bit more cleanup or damage. If you're smart about placing the right tenants, you won't have those issues. But uh, again, a little bit more risk, but then greater return. Where you might get you know, 2,000 a month for a house, to students you might get 2,500 a month. So you'll get a little bit more to offset some of those damages and things like that. So I like student rentals a lot. Uh, big fan, they're easy to place overall. Um, yeah, Ivan says that's why I bought Cineplex stock. Right on. Uh, I love Silver City personally. Like even now today, even in my new house when we're gonna have like a little movie theater set up, I'm still going to go out to the Silver City because it's nice. There's big leather recliner chairs. You get to go out and you get to have a good movie experience. I don't usually indulge in the popcorn. Um, like secretly, I bring my own chips in my jacket. Shh, don't tell anyone. You're not allowed to. But like I'll bring my own little, little popcorn like in my jacket or something. Um, and I just get like a free water. Uh, but yeah, I, I really love the Cineplex. Uh, Big, big fan of that. I know with like the online movement being everyone can watch movies online for free. They can just like rep them online and everyone's doing it now. So it's like every, like if you read the data, millions of Canadians and like tens of millions of Americans are doing it. So it's getting to a point where like it's hard for them to control it when everyone's doing it. 
but there's still an experience. Like, do I want to watch it like in a crap, like some of the best movies, the new like Avengers, do I want to watch that on like a crappy laptop screen, like blurry cam to my computer? Or do I want to go to the theater and enjoy the full experience with like the loud sound surround? I think there's still value there and they mark up their, their food appropriately. But yeah, uh, I don't know much about the stock. Can't say I recommend it, but overall the business model makes good sense. I, I like the business. Uh, okay, let's go up and see if I can do a power round on questions and answers. Okay, up we go, up we go, up we go. There's a lot of questions, holy moly. Hashtag real talk, hashtag real talk. Today was a real talk day. Ivan, good to see you on. Mike, good to see you here. Henry says, hi, are condos downtown Toronto, 400K plus worth it? Henry, depends what you consider worth it. They will not cash flow. So in that sense, I don't like them. I don't like it when my mortgage payment is more than my rent. Why would you become a landlord to lose money? Like, could you imagine dealing with all that crap that landlords have to deal with and all that work to lose money? The only play on those condos is you live in it and it's some emotional reason and you're like trying to house hack it in some way and you're living there. And I can understand the argument for that. But the main reason is appreciation. Um, you know, shut up. Go grow, go grow your, your little afro. When are you gonna cut your hair, he says. You guys know I cut my own hair and it's been a while since I've had the time to cut my own hair, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's getting to be a little much. I, I should give my haircut. You can see it's like, it's getting long. Um, I should cut my hair. Uh, I will cut it in the next couple weeks probably. Thank you for calling out the fact that my hair is a mess today and I didn't have a chance to brush it before the show. That's why I'm fire. Because it doesn't matter if, get the flow B. Eric says I should get a little flow going. I could see it, I could see it. Get the, uh, get the long flow. Should Rosehart, we should do a poll. I'm gonna do a poll after this and see if people think I should grow the flow and let it be, or whether I should cut my hair and keep it short. Who knows how many more years I'll have good hair to be able to do this. Like I have thick, luscious hair right now. Who knows how many more years I will have that. Uh, my grandfather on my mom's side is pretty much bald. And on my dad's side, he actually has good hair for 82. Um, but so who knows what will happen? It's 50-50 at this point. I'll probably lose my hair, chances are. So I might as well, while I'm still, I'm 26, I'll be 27, grow the flow. And maybe I'll just grow like a nasty goatee too. Wouldn't that be, see I got a little chin, chin thing starting out, a couple days no shaving. Maybe I should grow like a really beefy goatee. Maybe then I'd be seen as an authority in the space. Maybe then with like a, hi, hi Mike Rosehart. I want to teach you about personal finance. No, I'm not gonna let you cut my hair. Stay away with those scissors. Okay, so let's go up and hit these questions. Power session mode. Let's kick it in to high gear and let's see if I can get this done quick so I can focus on my daughter and bath time. So Henry, to answer the last year question, if you're still watching, Henry Fam, I like that. Uh, if you're from Scarborough, you'll, you'll know what's up, fam. Um, <laughs> condos, the only play in Toronto for 400,000 or more is appreciation. So you'd be speculating and banking that the market will appreciate at a faster rate than inflation. If you're leveraging, putting a small down payment, it can make sense. Where I do like condos in Toronto, where I'd maybe be interested in getting involved in condos is on the pre-build side. So where you can put up a deposit of 10 or $15,000 and lock up a condo that's built three years from now. So what you can do is you lock up a condo for 400 grand, three years from now, conceivably, the development's all done and it's really nice and things have appreciated for the last three years. Your $500,000 condo has appreciated and uh, get to a point where it, it's, 
you know, that, that appreciation is say 500,000 at 3% is 15,000, 15,000 and 15,000. So in theory with inflation, you should have $45,000 of appreciation three years later on the close of your condo. And you only had to put up a $15,000 deposit. So on closing, you've made 300% or three times your money. So that's where it can make a lot of sense, putting a very small amount down to lock a property up over the three years. Um, that's the only play I can see with condos, like just owning a condo in Toronto doesn't seem to make any sense. If someone were to give me a condo for a million dollars in Toronto, just like gift it to me, I would sell it. Um, so if that answers your question about where I feel like I'd sell it and just buy property that cash flowed, um, that will also probably appreciate at the same rate, but then also have cash flow. And so in a recession, I'm not carrying it, it's carrying itself and putting money in my pocket. So that's sort of my thoughts on uh, condo investing. Just be careful. Um, don't want to get in a position where you're underwater and you're carrying everything and there's no appreciation. So that's where, that's where investing for appreciation is a bit scary. Don't want to be in that position myself personally. Adventures on Vancouver Island. Good to see you on again. Thanks for your thoughts on Dave Ramsey last week. <laughs> no problem. I, you know, I like Dave, um, but definitely feel like he's a little bit too debt averse. And that's because he went bankrupt in the 80s. Uh, I've never been in that position because I don't overlever my, I don't lever myself that far. I think he's kind of been to the extreme and then he uses like the debt's bad. Debt managed well tied to cash flowing assets is a good thing if it's cheap debt. Okay, so even just explaining the triple M 4% safe withdrawal rate to others is hard for people to digest. Erica, totally true. Um, many people are not even thinking of retirement, not even thinking about their financial future. That was a great comment. Triple M's 4% rule is the idea that if you had a portfolio for say a million dollars, you could withdraw 4% from that portfolio forever and never run out of money. So your million dollar stock portfolio, if you save a million bucks over your lifetime, which most people, if you're saving 50% of your income, you'll save a million dollars by the time you reach retirement, like every single time, probably a couple million dollars if you make like 50 or 60 grand a year because the power of compound interest at seven or 8%, your portfolio will grow to a couple million dollars. That's just facts. Um, the other piece is that money, when you start saving that money up, you have the equity in your house, you can tap into it. That money should grow at about a 7% rate of return. So you would take 4% out and leave 3% in to grow. So your portfolio is always growing. You're never running out of money. You never touch the principal. You never draw down in a recession. You hold, you wait, and you basically just live on 4% every year. So if you had a million bucks, you could withdraw $40,000 a year to live on forever and never run out of money. Like two million bucks in a portfolio gives you $80,000 a year forever guaranteed. I would take it a step further and say, instead of doing 60% equities, 40% bonds, like they propose, I wanna do a video that's still on my backlog. Maybe this Saturday I'll do it. I'll do a video on how you could sub out the 40% bonds for 40% real estate. It operates very much the same. The risk profile is very much the same, but the return on levered real estate is like 20%. So it's like a bond that produces 20%. So I use that as my fixed income piece in my rule and I can withdraw an 8% safe withdrawal rate. So every million bucks gives me 80,000 in passive income, 60% stocks and dividends, 40% uh, real estate. So that's, that's sort of my thoughts on the matter. Uh, hope that's been value for you there. Hey, Sardino, good to see you on. Hey, Chung, good to see you on as well. Uh, this question, the name's so long, I can't read it. Uh, I'm trying to click on it. Okay, here, I've heard that you can invest in Vanguard and use an unsheltered account. Do you know the pros and cons about it? I don't know if it varies in each country. Greetings from the US of A. Okay, so that question I was able to click on and see it. Uh, yeah, Vanguard has, has a, you know, your own account. You can invest in Vanguard and buy Vanguard exchange traded funds or ETFs, which basically diversify 
uh, for you. Be careful what you're buying. There's a lot of bad ETFs out there. There's a lot of levered ETFs out there nowadays. Not all ETFs are the same, but the idea is that you'd buy a collection of stocks, like dozens of them, and you'd be diversified and safe because you own a small piece of every single exchange in the world. A small piece of Europe, a small piece of you know, stocks on the US exchange, the Canadian exchange, Brazil, Russia, India, China, BRIC, emerging markets, everything. And you're so balanced that if one market tanks, you're tied to every single stock market and you're collecting a nice healthy dividend and you're appreciating at a roughly six to 7% rate of return. That strategy, that portfolio equity strategy is a good one. I like it. It's hard to lose money. And that's important. I think whenever I invest, I say, what is my chance of losing money? And that's how I make my, my investment decision. Like I start with like, do not want to lose my money. Nothing feels worse than losing money. And then from there I say, how much could I make? And so typically what you'll see is the higher the chance of losing money, the higher the rate of return. The lower the chance of losing your money, the lower the return. Diversification is this magic thing that says uh, lower chance of losing money, but still getting a good return. So you want to diversify your portfolio so you can have that arbitrage where you've got a lower risk and a higher return. Pro tips. Mike, I have 10 years of emergency funds saved up. That is awesome, 10 years. So you could quit your job and live for 10 years on what you have, which if you invest that 10% would mean you could basically live forever, right? So reverse engineer that. If you could invest in private mortgages, go put mortgages on people's houses and collect a 10% rate of return, fill a need in the market. There are first mortgages, 75% loan to value, where you probably won't lose any money because you literally, if they don't pay you the mortgage payments to you, you take their house and you just sell it and you get your money back. You act like the bank effectively. And there's a whole private mortgage world out there that exists. We connect with a broker where you could put your money, you save a million bucks and you're living on hundred grand a year. That's, you know, that's 10 years of living expenses. Then you could put that to work and earn you a good amount of money. If you had 400 grand or 500 grand saved up at 10%, that's 50 grand a year forever. Um, now it's not going to beat inflation because you're going to be living on an entire 10%. So you'd be losing to inflation. So maybe you'd want to just live on like 8% and then put 2% back away. So your portfolio keeps growing with inflation or work part time so you can keep saving a little bit for the future. But great questions. I'll retire in my twenties. Cherry tongue, finance and fashion. I hope you do. Honestly, um, jump in the comments. Let me know how it's going for you. If there's any way I can help, give you strategies to earn more, spend, uh, spend less, earn more and maximize returns. Happy to do that. I became frugal four to five years ago. I woke up and smelled the coffee. <laughs> now I'll retire in a couple of years thanks to a few rental properties. Thanks for all the great info and advice. Thank you for that comment, it means a lot to me. I'm glad that you smelled the coffee and decided to make the change to become more frugal and save for the future. Mike, have you ever discovered the Smith Maneuver on your channel? Yeah, I love the Smith Maneuver. Uh, it's a, I can't go into it now. I've talked about it on previous uh, streams. So you can go check those out where you basically take the equity in your house and you make a, you put a line of credit, a home equity line of credit on it, take that money and go and buy in businesses or buy properties or buy something that creates you a better return than the interest cost. And then the interest on your personal mortgage is now a write-off against that asset. So you've made your house mortgage tax deductible. That is the Smith Maneuver. It's a good one. Smith Maneuver is very interest sensitive. This is true. Uh, I don't know what RSC, he message retracted. Hey Mike, 51 people watching. Nice, thanks. Gonna catch the replay. P.S. 25% Ontario government energy rebates on appliances is sweet. Yeah, I should check into that. That's a pro tip. Um, there's also the, the energy audit program where on your furnace or hot water tank, 
you can uh, you can get rebates back. If you replace your furnace, you get like a thousand dollar rebate back. And if your furnace costs two thousand dollars to install, that's like fifty percent off your furnace. Pro tip: did that on like eight properties. Uh, there is no limit on any property you can do it. Any investor can do it. Take advantage of it on your rental properties. Find out about those discounts that exist in the market. And ten percent off if you use your Home Depot card. Pro tip: Hey, I'm seventeen. Mason says, should I open an IRA account? I don't know that at 17 it makes any sense to. I think maybe at like once you're an illegal adult, because you can't even buy stock or own property until you're 18. Those people who you see those articles come out, the people who bought, like there was an article this US, in the US, this kid at like 14. There's a guy here in Canada, um, Tyson, who bought a couple houses at 15 or 16. Not to throw shade, but like you can't buy properties until you're 18. Only your parents can buy them for you and say they're yours, like in trust or something but uh, it's impossible to buy stock or to buy anything under the age of 18. So you've gotta be a legal adult to be buying. But if you're young watching this, it's not too late to start saving. There are ways you can put it in a savings account. You could get your parents to invest, like help you to invest or an uncle or a friend or something to that effect um, to be ready at 18 to go ahead and, and actually invest, right? So right now, if you're young, probably your best opportunity is to build skills that'll make you valuable to be employed or to earn more money. Learn how to like save and budget and then just work really, really hard. Don't focus on the return on your investment quite yet because you're still young. You don't have any savings really. And so even like to get 10% rate of return or 25% rate of return, it doesn't really matter. Same with like an IRA is um, like a, an IRA account is only like it's a retirement investment retirement account in the US. Um, an IRA is really only good, I think, if you're in a high tax bracket. And so I assume at 17, you're probably not in a huge high tax bracket. So it's not really necessary to open an IRA, but again, I'm not a financial advisor in the United States, so I can't comment one way or the other. Um, not terrible practice to try and open accounts up early and start saving. It's never too early to start saving. And you don't have to save in an IRA, you could save in a savings account, but save for your financial future. Canada is too expensive. Let's hear the tips. <laughs> Sendarian one, um, definitely check out some of my other videos I've done on how to be super frugal. I did a video on how we live on $24,000 a year. That one's a great one, big fan of that. Um, but how to actually save uh, and live well on very little. So I got tons of frugal tips on that. Last week, I did some frugal tips as well. 5% versus 20% down for portfolio building, which was a smart strategy for every new property you buy. I like 20% down, it's the cheapest because CMHC, Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation, take a lot in fees. However, for those people who are new, I was gonna do a video just on this, actually on my channel, but maybe I'll just spoil it right now. There is a new program now in Canada here where you can partner basically with CMHC. They don't charge you any fee, but they take an equity split. So they take like five or 10%, I think it's 5% of the uh, equity gains in the property. And so they basically become like an equity partner. They charge you nothing. The only way this makes a lot of sense is buy 5% down, do that option, don't pay them any fees, buy 5% down on your first property, and then have them um, be partners. And you can imagine if you're buying in a small town or buying a rundown cash flow property, then one that's not gonna appreciate probably in a small town, you're not expecting a lot of appreciation, partner with them so they get 5% of appreciation on a cash flow property and run the property for max cash flow. Then you got in for 5% down, very low money down, great cash flow, and you didn't have to pay any CMHC fees. The other option is to pay the 4% CMHC fee, which eats into your cash flow and it kills you on the exit. 5% of equity, if the property over five years, if you bought a property that's like, you're not gonna renovate it at all, you're just gonna run it for cash flow, milk it, it's like a, a cash flow property, 
and that's the whole goal. And you like your exit in five years is the same price you bought it for. And you just want to milk out like two grand a month in cash flow. It's just like a cash king property. It's like a rooming house that probably won't go up in value. That's okay. Really, actually, it's I actually for the first time recommend the five percent down program here in Canada that CMHC has put out, where they partner with you on the equity piece, on the appreciation piece. So if you're not if you're not buying appreciation properties, they end up getting a zero fee. So you end up winning and you get all the cash flow enough to split any cash flow with them. That is game changer. So 5% down in Canada, now attractive for the first time with these changes that CMHC has just put out there. Um, so I'm really excited about that. If I was just getting started right now, I'd buy a 5% down on a non-equity builder property, like a cash flow king that's fully maxed out. And then I would uh, be in a really good position. I can think of some strategies where you'd be in a really good position and be like, you could do like a vendor take back or something and be zero cash in and buy property that's just gonna be a cash king and then not giving CMHC much of anything because you bought a cash flow property. So that's really aggressive and I like that one a lot. Um, cool. So next question is, hi Mike, have you ever discussed the Smith Maneuver? We did that. Did that question, did that question. Uh, thoughts on buying properties 100% levered. I like buying properties 100% levered, Austin. I think it's a, an aggressive strategy. So it's not one you want to start off with if you're risk averse, but if you're young, you're hungry and you know, and you believe in the properties that you're buying, like, you know, there's a good amount of margin, like you're buying a property for, you know, 350, it's worth 400. Um, that feels really good. I think for going hundred percent levered where I don't think it's as good is when you take a bit of like, it's just, there's just risk associated. I do like getting into zero down deals. If the fees make sense, like the fees are too high, that doesn't make sense. Like CMHC is 4% of the property. That's a lot in, in fees to get into the property. And so that's something to think about. But if it fits between not getting into a deal at all and getting into a deal 100% financed, as in like you got a bank or a vendor take back to lend you 60 or 70%, and you borrowed the rest privately um, as like a second mortgage or unsecured, then that would be better than no property at all. Because now you're exposed to the appreciation, you're exposed to that cash flow, you're at least into a deal, you can learn. If nothing else, you'll learn a ton, right? Like worst case scenario, you make no money being 100% levered and you never end up being able to refinance it and you're stuck with it, but at least you learned a ton and you probably made a little bit of money along the way. And some deal is better than no deal, right? So that's, that's sort of my thoughts on it. Um, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not necessarily totally against 100% uh, levered, but be smart on what you're buying. Like if you're buying just a bare, like normal property on the MLS to like do, do, doing any research and like it's not good cash flow. Uh, be careful to be 100% levered. That's how you get into positions like Dave Ramsey was in where he was trying to flip like almost 100% levered and ended up bankrupt. So just be careful. Just be careful. That is an amazing thing to do for people. We need it here. Yeah, it's, it's like it's a hobby for mine. So it feels good. It's a win-win for everyone. We did all these questions. We did these ones. Hi Mike, what are your thoughts on starting an Airbnb arbitrage business? Little pump, um, I like it. I think that it's a okay paying job, effectively. Um, you rent a property for a year or two and then probably it'll change over and you have to move the furniture again. You gotta spend 15, 20 grand of time and money staging and setting up a property and getting the listing set up. Once you've invested all that money, then you have to then rent it out and make all that money back. So it takes like two years with the Airbnb re-rental business, like renting a house and then re-renting an Airbnb. It's not something I've done before, um, but I hear people who are crushing it. And so it, to me, it feels like a good paying job basically. Uh, Cause you don't own the house. You're just like making a profit on like doing all the work. So there's no asset there. You're just, and you're at the mercy of the landlord to kick you out. 
So yeah, I do feel like it's a good paying job. Could be a good side hustle. It'd be a great side hustle for those people who have the time and the energy. For me, my time's too valuable for that. Elrich says, hey Mike, I've been looking into purchasing my first income property in St. Catharines or Welland in my area. However, the majority of the houses in this area tend to be at least $300,000 to $400,000. I'm sure there's an opportunity to find a better deal than that. I even know specifically in those markets, deals that pop up I see in my network that are better than that. Um, but just because the house, like house prices are average 400 and something thousand in London, and yet I'm buying properties at 150,000, 175,000 in London all the time. After putting 20% down, calculating the property expenses, I find a property here barely cash flows or barely even breaks even at all. So maybe some negative cash flow as well as a possibility. Any advice? Um, find better properties to buy. Find properties that cash flow. So what do you have to do differently to get cash flow? Maybe you have to add bedrooms. Maybe you have to go make this three bedroom house, a five or six bedroom house to get cash flow in your area. Maybe you have to do student rentals. Maybe you have to buy single families and duplex them in your area. Maybe there's just an angle you probably aren't looking for. Um, I know for sure in those areas, people are getting cash flow. So you're just not looking in the right areas with the right strategy. Sometimes changing the lens which you view the world has a big impact, right? It's all about mindset and changing the way you look at the property. I've walked through properties before and been like, this has garbage. And then I walked through it again a year later, just like by chance it came on the market and I walked through it and I'm like, wow, this is like a perfect duplex conversion or whatever. And I didn't even think of that the first time I saw it because I was looking at it from a different lens. So it's all about the lens of which you view the world. And that's the beautiful thing about real estate is creativity. Is, that's what I love about real estate is that like, Everyone looks at a property and sees different things, sees different potential. And it's about how we can unlock and realize that potential. Like maybe by adding a driveway or like putting an addition on the house, we change the use of the house in a way that makes it like an awesome house now. So that's something that I really like. Um, big fan of that. Regarding stocks, you want to retire early. Should I avoid Roth IRA and invest 100% in taxable brokerages accounts? Casey, um, it depends. Like we'd have to go into a long conversation about that. Um, I know here in Canada, your RRSP, definitely can be withdrawn from whenever you want. People think your registered retirement savings account can only be withdrawn from once you're over the age of 55. That's only true for Liras, locked in retirement accounts. Um, your RRSP is not actually locked in. You can actually withdraw from that and just pay the tax on that withdrawal. And if you withdraw in years where you have no income, it's actually like it can be tax free. You can withdraw from your RRSP in a year where you're unemployed and it can be tax free. Pro tip in Canada. People can access their RRSPs whenever they want for down payments on their house. You can use it for a down payment proof on your house. RRSPs can be great things. Um, so yeah, I think that it depends on your strategy, but tax advantage accounts make a lot of sense. Why not take advantage of them? Especially if you're in a high earning year now and you will be in a low earning year conceivably in retirement. Do you consider Airbnb arbitrage as real estate investing? Sort of, sort of. I will consider it real estate investing but you don't own any underlying asset. You just own the furniture and you have a right to rent the house out, which could be terminated at the end of your lease. So it's, it is real estate. It's in the real estate field. It's more in the hospitalities field. Like you're providing an opportunity. I, yeah, I'll consider real estate investing. Can mentees have a job? Yes, they can. I prefer candidates that want to work with me full time. So I'm open to, if anyone wants to work in construction or help build a business in some way, I am open to paying. And what I'm trying to do now with the mentorship program is create business opportunities with my mentees and share the profit with them 50-50. And so they effectively have a job in that the mentorship program allows them to earn money through success in, in business. Um, they could also just like, I know so many um, opportunities in my market. If someone wants a job making like 
$35,000 a year, swinging a hammer. Um, I can hook that up super easy for any mentee that wants it. That's no problem. So any mentee who wants to come here and gets approved and wants to swing a hammer from nine to five and then learn with me in the evenings, totally fine. I can hook that up working for my properties or friends of mine. Um, so that's not a big deal, especially if you have the work ethic and you have some experience with the tools at least a little bit. Is it worth renting property to students? We answered that question. Knowledge is power. That's why I bought Sandflex stock. Uh, okay. How would I first get into owning and renting a unit? Would living in the basement and renting out the first floor be a good strategy for first time landlords? David, I love that strategy. I lived in the second floor of a one and a half story in the upper bedroom, rented out the other bedroom beside me, rented out the main floor, and then made a little basement suite on my first property when I was 19 years old. I had to renovate the basement to make it into a, like a little unit down there um, with like a living room, a bathroom, like a little kitchenette, and then a bedroom. And uh, it was a great way to get started. I knew nothing about real estate investing, like nothing. And I knew no one who had any real estate, and there was no networking groups, and there was no YouTube, and there was no bigger pockets. There was nothing. We were like early 2012, and there was like, Phil Pustjavanovsky on YouTube. He was like the only guy in the space that talked about this stuff. He was the first guy ever, like way before Graham and all the guys, he was the first guy talking about this stuff. And I didn't even know about him back then. I just bought a property, 20% down, scrounged the money together and convinced a bank to lend me at 19 with like the fact that I was working almost a full-time job while I was a student. And, and that's what it was. My girlfriend and I bought the property, now my wife. And uh, we just figured out how to put more bedrooms in and get more cash flow. And we lived break even. Great way to start. The worst thing that happens is you don't get any appreciation, you don't add any value, you screw up the renovations, and you still live for free. So it's kind of hard to lose when you're house hacking. That is the way to get started in real estate investing. Um, unless you got like a mentor or something that can walk you through doing deals, then like it's a different situation. Or maybe you want a JV partner with someone who's experienced, that's another way to get started in real estate, which makes you safe and comfortable, right? Um, yeah, so those are like the three ways I love to get invested in real estate to start. It's a bit more safe. I gotta go faster here. My wife wants me to wrap this up. Okay. Currently building my basement. Do you recommend soundproofing the basement to attract more tenants and possibly higher rent? Yes, soundproof your basement. Um, it's good for you, it's good for them, um, especially if you're living in the property. If you're not living in the property, eh, I mean, depends on the tenants you have above. If you have students above, do your lower tenants a, a service. They're not, then you're gonna have to not change the unit out as often. So that would be great to not do that. Um, mullet. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna go for the mullet. I think if I do it, I will just do like full flow long hair. Just saying what's up. Hey Brian, good to see you on. Jimmy Design, hey, how you doing? Ghost, is that Ghost Recon Arctic Vent? Cheap, Canada cheap cell phone plans and cars. Um, okay, so I use public mobile. If you want my code, I'll link it in the description down here. I pay like $35 a month, I think, for my cell phone, and I have unlimited international texting. I text Europe, text Canada, whatever. I can accept calls from anywhere in the world. So people calling from the US, I can answer. Um, unlimited Canada calling out, um, picture, video, text messages, five gigs of data. Basically, like everything for 35 bucks a month. The ponytail is just not for me, Eric. Uh, I don't know if I really would rock that. But uh, yeah, so Public Mobile, my favorite. Check out Public Mobile. They're the best in Canada for a cell phone plan. They're the cheapest in Canada. They use TELUS Towers. So they're not like Wind. Wind got changed over to Freedom Mobile. They're not like those guys where they're like only in a certain city. They use TELUS Towers. So they're everywhere in Canada all the time. Great service. 
So if you want to do that, you get a dollar off a year, you stay with them. And every time you refer someone, you get a dollar off per month, your plan. So use my code and save me a dollar off my cell phone plan. But no, seriously, just like do your research and you'll find that they are the cheapest. If there's anyone cheaper, let me know because I'd be happy to move. I'm all about that deal. Okay, we did all those questions. We did those ones. How much income is insurable with social security in Canada? Which percentage of insured earnings does the Canadian pension plan replace? What is the biggest pension that you can get from CPP? Brent, um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but something like, I think the max you can get is like 2K a month or something out of it. Um, EI will insure up to 54,000 or something. CBP stops after $55,000 a year, that's the max. Um, it's not great, like you don't wanna rely on the Canada Pension Plan or CPP in retirement. I, I don't rely on it at all. I'll probably get a very small amount for the years that I worked. Um, but yeah, I mean, CPP is all right. It's not a bad plan. Um, you could look at, just Google it. You can see exactly what the, the amount is. I think you get like 1200 bucks a month or something. Uh, on average per person or something to that effect. Hey Mike, my name is Russ from Hamilton. When are you buying properties in London for 175K? Are you going into these facing lots of rental costs? Russ, yes, often. There are houses though that are sometimes turnkey that I've bought for like 170 grand. They're just like single family, small houses in East London. Um, but yeah, oftentimes I have to renovate and happy to share my experiences, thanks. Uh, okay, still deals under 300K in Willen, not many in St. Catharines. If you find one there, it will be beat up. Exactly. So Jimmy, it will be beat up, but you have to definitely like be okay with fixing properties up if you want to get in at a low price point, right? Like to get in that low price point that you want, you're going to have to buy a little bit more derelict type building and you have to fix it up a little bit. And that's okay. Like we are the heroes, like the landlords that come in and fix the properties up. We are the heroes. We increase the quality of the overall units that have been degrading over time. Um, we also often take properties and duplex and triplex them and add units and bedrooms. We're providing more housing, right? So we are the winners. Um, for the people who are like against us out there, we're doing good service, right? Of course we make a little bit of money along the way. Why would we, like no one's doing anything for free. We all operate across like this. We basically all just do what's best for us in some way. So if it doesn't help us in any way, it's not sustainable. Like I could help people forever and it's just gotta be a win-win. Like the channel, for instance, the YouTube channel has to make enough to make money. Like it doesn't make sense for me to pay money for expensive equipment and all my time and then lose money. Like I don't wanna, it just doesn't make sense unless I'm wealthy enough to sustain that. But most people aren't wealthy enough to pick up full-on philanthropy. And no one does, no one does landlording like as a philanthropy type. I just don't know anyone who would wanna like deal with tenants for fun. I just can't think of anyone who do it for free or like pay money to do that. Maybe there's some sick individual who enjoys like collecting rent and like fixing shitty toilets and fighting with tenants. I don't know, I don't know anyone, but maybe there's someone out there. Uh, I mean, can I get a, men can I be a mentee if I currently have a job? Yeah, so it's a full-time, like I, I get the most value. I, I'll do this for free, I'll coach with people, I'll share with people on YouTube, but uh, for me, to get the most value out of the mentorship program, it has to be a win-win. And I see way more progress when the people move here, commit their life to the mentee program. And, and I watch them change your life on a full-time basis. They could live and work in London and it could be possible, but if they weren't here in London, like living and breathing it with the other mentees, there's just not the same value. So I'm a big fan of, you guys all smashing the like button because there's only 14 likes smashed and we've had 
well over 100 people in this stream. So smash that like button if you're watching it and you haven't smashed it. You owe that to me for the last 76 minutes of my life giving to you guys. <laughs> Please smash that like button. There we go. Someone smashed the like button. Good. Um, another one smashed the like button. Good, good, good. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. That's right. Um, no, it's just you, you put in the time and you get out the result. So people working full-time jobs in another city trying to like be a part-time mentee, it just doesn't really work. It's a waste of my time that could have been better spent giving to someone in like who really wants this. And to really want this, you have to give it your all, like full-time basis, I think, to get the real value out of it. So that's why I don't do part-time distance mentorship. I prefer to just do live-in mentorship. And I like to be with mentees who want to be part of my ecosphere for the rest of my life. Like one of my mentees, Jonas, he's the god godfather to my daughter. Like he's literally the godfather to my daughter. These people are part of my life for the rest of my life and I get to change their life and they get to become friends of mine. So I want to build lasting relationships and I want to see them like 10 years from now be balling out as millionaires, right? Like that's my goal for the program. But moreover, it's about helping them elevate from most of them going from a place of not having any wealth or experience to them becoming successful, you know, investors and, you know, living the fire lifestyle. So that's the program's about and I find it's most enriching on a full-time basis. Bath time, Mike. Thanks again. <laughs> exactly. Bath time. Um, so anyway, thank you everyone for watching. I really appreciate it. We just got 20 likes. Awesome. At certain points in this stream, we crossed over 60 people concurrently watching live. And I believe we had two, almost 200 people tune in for the live stream. So thank you all so much for watching. I appreciate it. I know that it's not always easy to listen to me talk for 75 minutes. And for those people who stayed in the whole time, I'm sorry for your ears. <laughs> um, spend less, earn more, and maximize those returns to unlock a wealth through you. And this Saturday, I will see you for my upload at noon. Every single Saturday, jump on, do me a favor, let the video run all the way through, play it a few times, hit the like button right away, and comment in it. It helps tell YouTube that my videos are of value. Thank you so much, guys, and have a good Wednesday.